Yo, this episode of Cheat Codes, a sickle cell podcast, was made possible by Global Blood Therapeutics and is intended for educational and informational purposes only. Visit GBT.com to learn more. Hello, Warriors, and welcome to a very special episode of Cheat Codes here with Dr. C. I'm Dr. Z. Dr. Callahan, we've got a good episode today. I'm, I'm really excited about this one, Dr. Z. We're going to talk about something close to home because it is home. Absolutely. We get to talk about Detroit today and um, why Detroit is special and the legacy of Detroit. And But before we get there, Dr. Callahan, why don't you set the stage for us? Tell us a little bit about this uh, historic city. You know, Detroit is my hometown, born and raised, and I've been here for about 45 years. Detroit is one of America's great cities. Of late, I've said, you know, our slogan should be, it's not as bad as you think. Um, but really, I'm, I'm proud of Detroit. It's a great place. I'm, I'm proud to be here, and especially in the context of sickle cell. Um, but a little background, Detroit uh, started as a French fur trading colony. Um, that's when the city started down on Jefferson by the river. There was Fort Detroit that was surrendered to the British in, in 1760 after the fall of Quebec. And the control of the area was ostensibly British after that until um, the, the Paris Treaty when it was signed over to the U.S. By the early 1800s, there were 45,000 people in Detroit. Um, but the, the main thrust of Detroit's history uh, came um, after the, the turn of the 20th century when the car industry really took off. So That's Detroit right. is the motor city. Ford, GM, and Chrysler were all headquartered in Detroit. Um, and people really moved here from everywhere in the world. So we have uh, populations of uh, people from the Middle East, from um, all parts of Europe, from uh, we have a giant Polish city, we have a, a Mexican town, we have a, a large African American population. Um, I, you know, I'm of Irish descent. We have an area called Cork Town, and and that immigration continues to this day. We uh, continue to have a, a large um, immigrant population, a, a lot now from Asia, especially South Asia. But after that that boom in the car industry, Detroit was the fourth largest city in the country and uh, one of the wealthiest. And that continued um, up until about uh, the, the post-World War II era um, when, when there started to be some suburbanization and really a lot of people left the city. So the, the population of Detroit has decreased from about 2 million to a little under 700,000 since that time. But the metropolitan area has continued to grow and there's about uh, four and a half, five million people, which is still one of the largest metropolitan areas in Detroit. And we have a lot of, you know, Detroit traditions. We have uh, all four major sports teams here. Sometimes we're called Hockey Town and we have the Red Wings. Um, we have the Pistons, the Bad Boys, several championships in the 80s and 90s. The Tigers, my favorite. And uh, we also have the Lions. Yeah. You know, yeah, well, not everything's great about Detroit, I there guess. There you go. I grew up in Windsor, Ontario, which is basically Detroit. It's just a little south of here and a little country south of here called Canada. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I felt like I'm from Detroit my whole life. I learned a lot of cool things about Detroit in the last little while, especially as sort of COVID was hitting us. You know, number one, after the, you know, what happened with the riots and the way suburbanization happened, you know, Detroit is 
the blackest city in America. 84% uh, of the population is African-American. And with the rise of Detroit during the auto industry's boom came the decline of Detroit with the auto industry's recession. We have started seeing a little bit of revitalization, a little bit of renewed interest in Detroit. And I can't help but draw a line from what's happening in Detroit to sort of sickle cell disease. A new interest, a little bit of renewed energy. We are seeing similar things happen in sickle cell disease, a disease that was abandoned and forgotten about and sort of pushed to the back, pushed aside, suddenly has interest from physicians and from industry and from all sorts of places. Similarly, here in Detroit, we now are seeing the revitalization of downtown, all sorts of investments, property that's unaffordable now in a place that used to sell houses for $400. It's, it's amazing that, uh, that this city has had the type of arc it's had. And I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that I'm a Detroiter. And um, there's certainly no city like this in the United States. Absolutely. And, I, you know, we have a long storied history, whether it's, you know, Motown or, or the innovation in the auto industry, the contributions to the war efforts. Um, there are, you know, incredibly famous Detroiters. And I, I think that's the most important thing. Is, you know, the character of a city is its people. And uh, I, I think in sickle cell, there are so many people here I'm, I'm excited to have here, excited to work with, and patients who I'm excited uh, to, to get the chance to help. And, you know, in Detroit, we've had uh, heroes in all walks of life. Uh, Rosa Parks was from Detroit. Malcolm X was from Detroit. Um, we've had, you know, in, incredible um, musicians. We have leaders in business. Did you talk about Motown? I, you know, I briefly mentioned Motown, but, uh, you know, from Motown to Eminem, Detroit's always been a capital of music. We've had great sports figures here. Madonna? I, she went to my high school. I don't know if that's the thing we want to be most proud of, but... Uh... <laughs> so on this episode, we're going to talk about Detroit. Detroit and sickle cell in well, Detroit in particular. Here. And I, I think, you know, we're going to talk to uh, some stars of sickle cell here in Detroit, um, Dr. Sherney. Um, who's who's one of my heroes, and Dr. Heinz, who's another one. But I, I think before before we touch on that, I briefly want to talk about a little bit of the legacy and the history of, of sickle cell here in Detroit. We pride ourselves at the Children's Hospital of Michigan that our, um, one of our earliest pediatricians in chief was a guy called Tom Cooley. And he uh, first described the hemoglobinopathies here in Detroit with uh, patients who were seen at the Children's Hospital Mediterranean anemia, he called it. Um, some people call it Cooley's anemia. Um, this was the first reports of, of thalassemia. There was, after him, uh, a fellow by the name of Wolf Zolzer, who was really a legend in, in hematology, in uh, so many areas of hematology, but he did have some breakthroughs in, in hemoglobinopathies as well. Um, he worked with uh, James Neal at University of Michigan, who described the genetics of sickle cell disease. 
they discovered hemoglobin C and its interaction with uh, hemoglobin S and, and SC disease. Dr. Lusher, who was my mentor, did really a, a lot of work um, with electron microscopy and looking at what was going on in the spleen of people with sickle cell disease. Um, she was one of the first people to try out urea as a therapy um, that you know was a forerunner to hydroxyurea. Um, she described neurologic complications in sickle cell and the use of preoperative transfusions and transfusions for secondary prevention of stroke with Dr. Ingrid Sarnayak, who still works with us today. Way before it was the standard of care. It, it was the a seminal paper that, that started that really. Um, and Dr. Sarnayak herself, I mean, uh, we work with her every day and uh, she's amazing athlete, mom, person, but you can't overlook her contributions to sickle cell. I mean, she has, I think, a half dozen New England Journal papers, Lancet papers, lots of blood papers. She uh, studied gallstone disease and transfusion and pneumonia vaccines and many new therapies. Dr. Ananda Prasad, who um, really discovered the effect of zinc deficiency and then studied that in sickle cell disease and, and ran the comprehensive sickle cell disease center, uh, NIH-funded center here in Detroit for many years. Paul Swerdlow, who uh, has run the adult clinic for quite some time and um, really did work in biochemical studies of, of hemoglobin as a young man in, in clinical trials um, afterwards. And I, I think we're going to talk today a lot about the contributions of Dr. Witten, and they're just unbelievable. And the, the work goes on today. I mean, I'm, I'm proud of what you're doing, Dr. Z, and what Dr. Hines is doing, and um, Dr. Glaros, and, and we have uh, a great young group here and, and a, big, a big set of shoes to, uh, to fill. And a fearless leader in Mike Callahan. Yeah, I'm excited for this episode. So, so without making you guys wait anymore, let's get to it. All right, let's talk to Dr. Sherney and Dr. Hines. Cheat Codes is brought to you today by Global Blood Therapeutics. GBT is a biopharmaceutical company committed to discovering, developing, and delivering life-changing treatments that provide hope to underserved patient communities, including sickle cell disease. GBT is grounded by a mission-driven culture and built with a team of experienced and passionate people committed to making a difference in the communities it serves. Cheat Codes is grateful to GBT for supporting today's episode and for serving the sickle cell community. We've got a couple guests with us today for our first legacy podcast, which is going to be a series that highlights cities around the United States that have a large sickle cell population. We figured there's no better place to start than right at home, Dr. C, because we've got a pretty good story to tell here in Detroit. Absolutely. And, and we've brought along a couple storytellers that can help us sort of bolster the information we give to you about what we're building here in Detroit and what has been built here in Detroit, the, the legacy that, that was built by Dr. Charles Witten. We're, we're so fortunate that we have Dr. Wanda Witten Sherney here on this show with us today. Absolutely. We build more in cars in Detroit. That's so true, right? We, we have a, a huge legacy of sickle cell disease that was uh, really built here in Detroit, but sprung forward nationally. 
uh, right out of here, right out of our own backyard. We also will be able to tell you guys the story about the clinic right now, the way things run here, and a little bit about what Patrick Hines, who was our co-host a few episodes ago, is doing with functional fluidics. I'm really excited to get this going. I am too. A lot of exciting things going on. All right. So we've got no segments in this episode. It's just going to be the four of us talking. So let's let's bring on our, our, our panelists here. So so Dr. Wanda Witten Sherney is, uh, is the first guest we'll introduce. And Dr. Sherney is, I mean, I... I'm the president of her fan club. <laughs> I, I don't have I don't have words that can do justice to what Wanda Witten Sherney means to the sickle cell community in Detroit or nationally. But Dr. Sherney, we're just so happy that you're here to join us and to talk a little bit about your father's legacy and what he built in Detroit. Yeah, Amar, it's it's a pleasure actually to be here. And you know, for any of you who have ever heard me speak um, about sickle cell disease, you know that I always talk about my dad. You know, and 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 the thing is. I also always talk about the importance of ancestors, you know, and in African culture, ancestors are very important. And in African American culture, I think that's kind of carried over. And in some African cultures, we're all we're actually said to be standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. And I truly feel that I both of my feet are firmly planted on the shoulders of my dad, Dr. Charles Whitten. You know, he went to school at Meharry Medical College. And then he worked as a family physician in Buffalo, New York. And he applied for a position as chief of pediatrics in Buffalo, and he did not get the position. And he later learned that the reason he didn't get the position was because they weren't at that point ready to offer that position to a person of color. And then he actually came to Detroit to take the position of chief of pediatrics because they were, here in Detroit, we were ready to offer that position to my dad. So that's actually what got us moving to Detroit. My dad did a six month hematology fellowship under Dr. Wolf Zulser. So he had an interest in sickle cell disease, but his real interest in sickle cell disease had to do with the fact that he felt that there was information available about the disease that wasn't being used to help the population. Just for example, even knowing your trait status and making an informed decision about having a child with sickle cell disease. So that's really what prompted him to start what was then called the National Association for Sickle Cell Disease. Uh, he was um, a major co-founder, and then in it, that later became the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America. He also started the Sickle Cell Detection and Information Center, which was right up the street from me um, on Davison at Kerwood Hospital, which later moved to uh, James Cousins Highway. So it's right off the freeway, easily accessible. We own the building free and clear, and we provide their non-medical services for individuals living with sickle cell disease with the mission of maximizing the quality of life of individuals with sickle cell disease with helping, and this was so important to my dad, helping individuals who are at risk for having a child with sickle cell disease make an informed decision about childbearing. So not to say that if you both have sickle cell trait, you shouldn't have any children, or if you do conceive a child that you should have prenatal diagnosis and terminate the pregnancy because this is such a horrible disease, but that you should know ahead of time about the risk and know that there's a one out of four chance and be prepared to deal with the challenges of raising a child with sickle cell disease if, what you, if that's what you choose to do. The third mission being just educating the public and providing free testing. So we have a CLIA certified lab where we offer free testing for sickle cell disease and sickle cell trait. 
And the other really important thing that he did with Dr. Bill Young at the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services was to negotiate a contract where the Sickle Cell Disease Association of America, Michigan chapter, serves as the coordinating center for the newborn hemoglobinopathy screening program. So that is so important, Amar and Mike, because that means that since 1987, you know, so in, in June 19th, of 1986, that landmark article came out that proved that giving penicillin twice a day would dramatically decrease the chances of having a, of a child with sickle cell disease dying from pneumococcal sepsis. So that is what gave us the intervention to start newborn screening. So on July 1, we started newborn screening, and now we serve as the coordinating center. So all over the state, we have a statewide program with patient advocates strategically placed to meet 95% of the population. So everybody comes through us. Since 1987, we've had our hands on every baby that was born in the state of, of Michigan that has sickle cell disease, and we put them through an educational process, and then we provide uh, support services. The type of reach that you guys have in this sickle cell community, the way that you guys built that reach is just phenomenal, phenomenal. I think the thing that impresses me most about it is it's really personal. I mean, I, when I talk to patients, and this has been 20 years now, they all know you, Dr. Sherney. They all talk about you like you're a family member. If I tell them something, they say, oh, let me run this by Dr. Sherney. Even some patients, I've been their doctor for 10 years, and they say, I trust you, but I'm going to run this one by Dr. Sherney. So, I mean, really, it's an incredible legacy of your dad and yourself to have this program of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people um, who've really relied on you to, to get appropriate care for, for sickle cell disease. Yeah, I, I really appreciate those comments, Mike. I also just want to say that in terms of the comprehensive sickle cell clinic at Children's Hospital, my dad actually started that clinic too, you know, and his concern there was as a hematology fellow, he was seeing that patients with cancer were getting comprehensive care and patients with sickle cell disease were not, you know, and what would happen is that the hematology fellows would rotate through to take care of patients. So they were, the patients were seeing new faces all the time. So what he did was he hired nurse practitioners who would be stable, who would be there to watch the kids grow up. And, you know, I think that's really the most important part. I think that's part of why, People say, I want to run this by Dr. Sherney because I've actually watched them grow up, right? And I've been involved in, in, in their lives in, in that way. But, and um, Alberta and Sandy were there. Alberta was there for 30 years. Uh, Sandy was probably there for 35 years. I mean, it's, it's just like, um, and, and Beverly Drakeford, man, you know, the receptionist. Says, I mean, my father hired Beverly Drakeford. And then not to mention, of course, Dr. Ingrid Sarnike who actually started, uh, at that time she was wearing East Indian clothes and had the long ponytail. And I just remember the day my father introduced me to her and I was a kid, you know, I, I uh, feel like I grew up in, in the uh, sickle cell community and it, it's been a wonderful community to grow up in and it's been very rewarding. And the feedback that I get from patients is, is just outstanding. And uh, if I could just say one last thing, and I say this every time, is that I was born on June 19th. So I was born on World Sickle Cell Day, and so I really think that this was my calling, and that being Dr. Witten's daughter and being Eloy's Witten's daughter just has, has uh, created a, a really warm 
and a nice, nice setting for me to, to be involved in. So I appreciate you allowing me to share that information. I mean, I think, you know, uh, Dr. Callahan was saying this earlier, June 19th is a great day for so many reasons. We get to celebrate, you know, World Sickle Cell Day, but we also get to celebrate, uh, we get to celebrate your uh, presence on earth. Which is, <laughs> for 63 years. So important to us and so important <laughs> to our community. Now, that is definitely not the last thing you're going to say on this episode. We're going to come right back to all of this. We're going to dive into this a little bit more. But I want to hear a little bit from our other co-host here, um, Dr. Patrick Hines. Dr. Patrick Hines is um, a very, um, very accomplished uh, critical care medicine doctor who is a card-carrying hematologist as well. Uh, we, we, we let him into the club because I think, I think actually he, he wanted to be a hematologist probably but we just weren't exciting enough or cool enough for him to officially join us. Um, so he, he became an adrenaline junkie and, and jumped onto that critical care medicine train where he gets to save uh, people who are on the verge of death. But uh, in his spare time, the, the little spare time that he has, he uh, basically serves the sickle cell community and, and, and works as the founder and CEO of a company called Functional Fluidics. Um, that works so closely with us. And I, I want to hear a little bit of the story of how functional fluidics has become this integral piece of the sickle cell architecture in Detroit. So, so Patrick, welcome, welcome again. And uh, we, want, we want to hear from you, man. Tell us about how, how you built up things here in Detroit. Great. Amar, Mike, thanks so much uh, for giving me the opportunity to talk to you guys. Uh, it's an honor to be on with, uh, with Dr. Dr. Sherney as well. That's such an amazing story about you and your, your dad and just being involved with sickle cell disease for most of my career. I've always heard about him and to be able to meet you when I came to Detroit back in uh, 2009 was, was just so surreal and such an honor. So, so about me, uh, so I've, I've been here in Detroit uh, at the Children's Hospital since 2009. And my career started back, uh, I would say in the the late 90s at University of North Carolina, uh, where I did my MD and my PhD. And my, my PhD work was uh, studying red blood cell biochemistry and biology and with specific applications of sickle cell disease. So I was in a lab that, that studied platelets. So we looked at a lot of processes in cells that didn't have a nucleus, that did a lot of cool things that could respond to signals that the body was sending um, to regulate their activity. And people had done a lot of this work in platelets but red cells has sort of been an afterthought up to this point. So when, when I got into this work, we were really interested in how the body in individuals with sickle cell disease regulated the function and activity of red blood cells. And we learned a lot of things. We learned that stress via things like epinephrine and other mediators that the body produces in response to stress can actually change the function of red blood cells in real time. And one of the specific things that can change is the stickiness of red blood cells in that context. And there was a lot of data leading up to that point that taught us that stickiness of red blood cells is, is by definition a pathologic property and that it can also lead to worse complications in sickle cell disease. And folks were actually trying to develop a lot of therapies to modify this property in red blood cells from sickle cell disease patients. So by the time I finished up at Carolina, I did my residency and my, my fellowship in critical care at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And you're right, uh, Amar, I, I did go to CHOP intending to be a hematologist until I, I, I met outpatient medicine and realized that was, that was not 
my environment. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I decided I wanted a more hospital-based specialty, and and I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie. So, so critical care was perfect for me. But what I found as sort of an aside is that sickle cell needs friends and advocates all over the place, um, not just in hematology. So I'm, I'm excited to sort of be that in, in critical care. And um, Patricia Cavanaugh, who you just had on uh, doing similar work in, in, in the ED, um, I think we need advocates all over the place, but I, I digress. So came to, to Detroit in 2009, set up my laboratory at Wayne State, and we began to continue studying uh, red blood cells and sickle cell patients. But the thing that changed at that point was drug companies were now having a lot more momentum in the development of therapies that modify the function of, of, of red blood cells. And they were applying these therapies to the initial indication of sickle cell disease. But what didn't exist at that time was an objective, standardized, clinically available tool to assess the health of red blood cells, nor had we directly linked any of these properties of red blood cells to specific outcomes. And so that's where I was really interested in getting involved. And our lab had already developed a number of tests that looked at different properties of red blood cells. And so we saw an opportunity to make this more broadly available to both folks developing the therapies for sickle cell disease to help uh, facilitate that process, as well as providers taking care of these patients. And the most efficient way to do that was to make it available commercially. And so with the help of uh, Wayne State, we launched Functional Fluidics back in 2014. We were working with MAST Therapeutics back at that time. And also some interesting work we did with Biogen back during that time also, looking at uh, one of their already approved medications that they were looking at applying to sickle cell disease. And we saw that having a way to objectively assess these properties would, re would really help facilitate drug development and once these therapies were available, we envisioned an opportunity to be able to objectively assess the health of red blood cells in patients um, that were getting started on these therapies. So just like we do with other surrogate endpoints, such as LDL, cholesterol, and, and, and blood pressures in folks with cardiovascular disease risk, we wanted to have something like that available in sickle cell disease so we didn't have to wait for individuals to get physically sick but we could try to maintain the health of their red blood cells as a, as, a, as a strategy for keeping that patient healthy. And that's what functional fluidics is all about. It's such a crucial thing to be able to apply this type of metric to red blood cell health and sickle cell disease. We're so thankful that you're just like a phone call away. You're down, down the street from us, man. It's just, um, it's, a, it's a really good situation for us here. And it's something we really need in sickle cell. We want to know if the medicines are working before we start having bad effects or, or wait and find out that they don't work and be able to switch and, and really put people on the appropriate care and the right people on the appropriate care. And until now, we don't have tools for that. So working on this and building those tools is, is so important. And uh, we're so excited that you're doing that right here in Detroit and that we get to collaborate with you. And uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun and hopefully we'll do a lot of good. So, you know, Dr. Sherney, I want to jump back to, to talk about Dr. Charles Witten a little bit more. I'm so intrigued by just everything he did and what he built here. And I'm so sad that I never got to meet him. I, I was at 
the uh, American Society of Pediatric Hematology Oncology meeting in, I think, two years ago, so 2018. And Elliot Vichinsky won the uh, Lifetime Achievement Award. And, and I remember after that, there was a little reception and I was talking to him and I said, tell, tell me a little bit about how your story with sickle cell started. Like, what motivated you? What got you going? And he said, you know, as a young trainee on my clipboard that I would carry around, he said for three years, he had the psychosocial effects of sickle cell disease, 1974 paper of your father's on his clipboard for like three years. And he said, I would just read that. It's amazing that his effect and his impact was, it just, he touched so many people in so many different ways. And I know Dr. Callahan has been diving into some of the literature here. So I'm going to, I'm going to kick the ball to him on this one. Tell us what you found about CF Witten on PubMed. Yeah. So I, you know, I uh, was familiar with some, but not all of this. And uh, I, I think so many things Dr. Witten did. I, I went to Haiti a few years ago and it turned out he had started a sickle cell clinic in Haiti. He started a sickle cell clinic in Detroit. He started the Sickle Cell Disease Association, um, started newborn screening. But on top of that, he had an amazing academic career. I mean, um, published many, many seminal papers. And I, I remember um, when I was a uh, resident, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with the 50 most important papers in the last 50 years. And one of them was from Dr. Witten. It wasn't even about sickle cell. It was about uh, iron poisoning. Um, but in sickle cell in particular, he had such a huge footprint. So he had you know, early papers about renal concentrating defects in sickle cell, growth effects of sickle cell, the effect of sickle cell on haptoglobin, the effect of sickle cell on intellectual functioning, gallstones, uh, as you mentioned, the psychosocial uh, aspects, fetal hemoglobin induction, and uh, newborn screening. And I, I mean, really just a, a tremendous uh, literature that, that he was a part of and, and developed. It makes me so proud to be working in this center that has such a great legacy um, that you know started with Dr. Witten. And, uh, you know, many other highlights. We've talked about Dr. Sarnayak, uh, Dr. Lusher, Dr. Zulzer, Dr. Um, Prasad, Dr. Swerdelo, and now Dr. Zaidi and Dr. Hines. And um, Dr. hopefully we'll, we'll continue uh, Dr. Witten's legacy and keep uh, putting out really, you know, important research that changes the field of sickle cell and makes lives better for patients. He, um, you know, uh, the, the one really interesting paper that I saw was about pseudo-sickling in deer. Right, right, yeah. And, and you know, that, that brings up a really important point because my dad was a very busy man. You know, we sat on his lap and he read to us, you know, and he was the father, you know, the ultimate father in addition to all this. And uh, when we went to this farm or to this zoo to look at pseudo-sickling in deer, Lisa, my sister and I just thought we were going to visit a zoo. We didn't know he was going to draw blood off of these deer that had these sickle cells but didn't have, um, but, but, uh, didn't have the symptoms of sickle cell disease. I'm really kind of having flight of ideas, you know, but there are a couple of things that I really want to mention. And, and one is when you talk about the broad influence that my dad had, you know, to me on the world, is that I, I can't go without mentioning the post-baccalaureate program at Wayne State University. Absolutely. My, my, father, my father's father died when he was eight years old. 
So basically he became the man of the household, right? And so I think he says that that's part of why the, he was the way that he was. But, and my Aunt Alice paid for his medical school education at, at Meharry. And, and so when they asked all the parents to stand up, of course, Aunt Alice stood up, you know? And, and uh, my father felt that he was privileged, but yet there were black people who could be good doctors yet for their circumstances. So he went about trying to change those circumstances. So he started this post-baccalaureate program. And one of the requirements was that you be a first generation college graduate. Another was that you had to agree not to work and they would pay you a stipend because he felt that the reason we weren't doing as well on test scores is because people were working full time and going to school. And then it became a five year program. And if you were rejected from Wayne State University School of Medicine and maintained a, a B average in the first year of the program, you were guaranteed admission into Wayne State University College of Medicine. And I think the outcome of that is that for the years that he ran the program, which is kind of really being dismantled at this point, unfortunately, Wayne State University graduated more black doctors than any other university besides Meharry, where he went and Howard, where I went. And I and, and you know, I have been to the graduation parties of some of the graduates and it, it's just in the community. And it's like everybody is seeing that here's a, a doctor, here's a black doctor, another and I if she could do it, I could do it. If he could do it, I could do it. So I think that that has been a tremendous thing. You know, another thing that I want to mention is Dr. Batinsky is one of my favorite people on the face of the earth, and he has shared that story with me about the clipboard. And if you just look at, if, if he motivated Elliot, you know, it's like, wow, look at all the work that Elliot has done. You know, I guess the last thing is that, you know, when my father passed away, I had two regrets for him. One was that he wasn't able to see Barack Obama be elected, and, and two, that he wasn't able to see my daughter get her master's degree from University of Pennsylvania, where he went, you know, and, 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 but the third then came about when the NIH reached out to me and told me that they wanted to archive all of my father's papers in the National Medical Library, and on February 2nd of, um, what year was that? What, what would have been my father's 90th birthday, I was able to travel to Bethesda and give a talk about his life. And I think that if, if he had known that his papers were going to live on, that would have been so wonderful for him. You know, and, and the last thing that I want to say is that we've had this conversation before, but I, I feel like Michigan could really be you know, a center of excellence for care of patients with sickle cell disease. And with, with Mike and, and Patrick and you, uh, Amar, and if we can get that adult clinic organized, you know, 75% of the people with sickle cell disease live in the Detroit metropolitan area. So if we can maximize care for those patients, then we've made a big difference. And so I really feel like with all of the, uh, the bright future that we have now, um, that, that if, we, if we can really maximize the care of our patients, I, I think that that would really make my father proud. I feel blessed that we have such a great center to begin with. I mean, at, at the Children's Hospital, we have pediatricians, we have nurse practitioners, we have social work, um, we have newborn screening program, we have psychology. We're blessed to have all of that, but we do have so much more work to do. There are so many challenges. And uh, I, I think, you know, the future looks bright here. We have all the pieces and we have to, we have to leverage it and keep moving things forward. We got new treatments now. There's gene therapy on the horizon. We have a gene therapy study open at Carmanos with Dr. Alavi. 
Um, I, I think there's just so many exciting things going on here, but we got to keep the momentum going. We got to build on it. And I think you're right, especially around an adult program. Um, we, we need to improve things. We, I, one good thing that's come out of COVID is the, the hospital said, you know, you can admit people up to 25 here. And uh, we said, great, and started bringing a lot of sickle cell patients in who are in their late teens, early 20s. And so I think that's going to help a little bit, but uh, we have a, a lot of patients who are still falling in the gaps. Yeah. And, and Mike, in terms of the adult clinic, I, I just really need to mention the fact that um, Arthur Jett is a physician assistant and Lisa Litzy is a nurse practitioner. And they have been over there fighting the fight in a, in a terribly under-resourced clinic with no physician regularly seeing patients and but but they've both been there for over 25 years uh lisa was laid off and and my organization was able to bring her back by paying her salary for two days a week just to bolster things but there's 600 patients over there that are basically not getting the care that they deserve because of this under-resourced clinic but i do want to acknowledge the hard work of arthur jett and lisa litzy absolutely and i i think this isn't a unique to Detroit thing, but um, I think we've got the pieces to make it better here. That's our job. We've got a lot of ideas for it. We've got to put them into action. I, I keep coming back to this theme that I, I learned from this uh, comedian named Nori Davis, who, when we interviewed, said something that just resonated so deeply with me. Sickle cell disease is the back of the bus disease. And, 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 and while that's true for patients, it's even true for us, right? It's true for providers. It's true for advocates. It's true for everyone in the sense that even as a sickle cell provider or, or a stakeholder, you're a back of the bus provider. You're a back of the bus stakeholder. Your opinion's not as important. The resources you need are not as important. You're, you're back of the bus, even from that angle of sickle cell disease, right? Even from an angle where you're supposedly able to do something for the patients. And I, and I really hope we can turn around that narrative here in Detroit and lead by example and, and show that our model that is so, I mean, our beating heart is Dr. Wanda Witten-Sherney and SCDA of Michigan, and that powers this entire operation, right? And I think that showing that this model works where your medical home, your medical system is in sync and in tune with the CBO to deliver uh, the care that sickle cell patients deserve. I think we're so close to achieving that. It's just going to take a little bit of innovation and a little bit of help from, you know, a few dedicated people. But I, I think we're heading in the right direction here in Detroit. So thanks to you, Dr. Sherney, for, for, for being that spirit that we need to drive this forward. Oh, it's just been absolutely my pleasure. I'm really curious. I have to ask you this. Going back to your dad again, tell us a little bit about Charles Witten, the father. So were you, what were dinnertime discussions like? Was that, I mean, were you guys always talking sickle cell in the house? Because, uh, you know, I can't imagine that uh, for someone who was so dedicated, I feel like that was probably the only topic of conversation all the time. Okay, so, so here's the thing. My mother was on the International Board for Planned Parenthood. And so there was lots of conversation, especially when we became teenagers about contraception, right? Yeah, so there was all kinds of things about Planned Parenthood around the house. And then there were all kinds of things about sickle cell and the little 
film strip that my father put together back in the 70s. There was a tape and then you could, it would beep and then you go on to the next picture and it was really kind of makeshift, but it really worked, right? And then of course there was that mobile unit, you know, he took a school bus and he changed it into a laboratory and then it traveled all around the state and tested people. And if you're, and, and it tested you right, Irving tested you right then and there, your test results came back in 20 minutes. And then you, if you were positive, you had to get back on the bus and listen to a PowerPoint, you know, about having sickle cell traits and genetic significance. Okay, that didn't quite answer your question. So let me get to your question, which is that my father was multifaceted, right? He was a gardener. You know, we had triple hybrid corn in the backyard that my daughter says she'll never eat another ear of corn because it's not her grandfather's corn. He had dwarf peach trees. Uh, one of the deans of the medical school had some land and it happened to be white. And he, my dad was planting corn on his land. He said he was a sharecropper, you know, so, <laughs> so in addition to that, um, he was a gourmet chef, you know, and he would, he traveled to France to learn how to make French bread, you know? And so there was a lot of cooking and my sister Lisa and I following him around the kitchen and, um, my grandmother kind of teasing him when he was trying to really get her homemade rolls perfected and throwing little ingredients over her shoulder, like pretending like, no, I'm not telling you about this ingredient. So um, the Witten family had quite a sense of humor and really big into teasing and dinner time was uh, somewhat political, but a lot about what's going on in school and what are you interested in and, and what are the things that are important and respect for other children. And, and I was educated in Detroit public school system. And uh, my parents say that I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be the person that I am if I hadn't had that experience. So I've, I've really appreciated that. I know one of the comments that people make to me all the time is that oh, you're so down to earth, you know, and, you know, a lot of times if I'm out meeting people, they assume I'm a nurse or a teacher and, and not a physician. And I attribute all of that uh, to my parents and, and, and the way that I was raised. But he was very family oriented. We did a lot of traveling. When we traveled to West Africa, when he was talking about sickle cell disease, in every country we went to, in every city we went to, we stayed in the homes of family members. So you had that real experience. And he would often he, he had, I remember just one uh, place, that I believe it was in Sierra Leone, where he wanted to learn how to make a certain kind of bread. He had the woman open up her, her bakery an hour early so that he could come and then watch her make this particular kind of bread, you know? So it was like that. He was a, he was a people person and he, um, you don't get to choose your parents, right? And, and so to have been honored to be the child of Dr. Charles Whitten and, and Mary Eloise Calmer Winifred, was just uh, just wonderful. Amazing. That's amazing. I kind of feel like we we have to spend a little bit more time talking about the bus. Okay. Because I feel like <laughs> even in 2020, you're talking about 50 years ago. Right. In 2020, that would be innovative and effective and just a huge undertaking. We've written a number of, of grants to try to get, we've been connected with Toyota to try to get something like that again. Because if you talk about sickle cell awareness, and, and one of the things that happens is that people come up to the, uh, to the SCDAA and they say, whatever happened to that bus? You know, and if people are asking about it, it's like, let's bring it back, you know, and if we can take the testing to the people, you know, that, that would really make a difference. I don't think it needs to be a laboratory because we can bring the blood back and, and run the electrophoresis. But it would be nice to have a red band 
with SCDAA and, you know, know your trait status and sickle cell awareness. And now that we're going to one of the legislators that uh, covers Ypsilanti, Ronnie Peterson, is spearheading getting a sickle cell awareness license plate for uh, Michigan, you know, as a fundraiser. And so we could have that plate on the, on the back of the van. And, and, and I think it would really make a difference in, in terms of, of awareness. Um, so, but that bus was really something. There had been a couple of newspaper articles about it and how many people were tested. Now they're standing in line to be tested. But, you know, it's just the concept of, of, of taking, taking the information, taking the resources directly to the, to the people, you know, and making it easier and trying to um, alleviate some of those social determinants of health. Patrick, can you get the functional fluidics lab and Mike Tarasoff on that book? <laughs> well, you know what? I, I was just thinking as, uh, you know, Dr. Dr. Sherman was talking that it, it reminds me a lot about the ellipsis study. And, and it's almost when you sort of hear that historical through line, that whole study was about bringing research to the patients, right? Not asking them to come to the ivory tower, the hospital, to have their blood drawn, and then to follow them over time. But to, but to bring the, 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 the testing and the, and the research to them in their environment where they're actually experiencing the disease. And I think that one of the things I've always thought about sickle cell disease as a missed opportunity for medicine as a whole, there's so much that I think medicine can learn about taking care of chronic disease, underserved populations through sickle cell disease. And had we made a lot of the investments and followed the example of folks like Dr. Witten, how much further will we be along when we think about the, 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 some of the difficulties we're dealing with now in the healthcare system, like the opioid crises and, and how we better manage folks with chronic pain issues or just chronic health issues in general. And so it, it, it really just brought to mind the ellipsis study in terms of that through line from the bus to actually a, a study that looked at bringing a clinical trial to the homes of the patients I was literally, I mean, I was thinking the exact same thing, Patrick. That should be the first line of your ellipsis manuscript is 50 years ago in Detroit, you know, uh, a dedicated physician drove around a bus basically testing people for sickle cell. And, you know, 50 years later, we have a clinical trial that went home to home in a very similar way. Um, it's such a cool way to complete that arc. And I like to think Dr. Witten was guiding our hands as we were trying to put that together and we didn't even know it. <laughs> <laughs> I believe in that. My mother really believes in that kind of thought process. And I, I think that he's very happy about what's going on now, but there are still some challenges that we're facing. I wish I could talk to him in person. Yeah, me too. Me too, honestly. You know, as we're coming to a close here, what I want to hear from you guys, all of you, even you, Dr. C, I want to hear this from you. What is your in your ideal world, where do you want to see Detroit 10 years from now as far as sickle cell goes? We have a lot of the pieces here in Detroit. I mean, we have advocacy, we have uh, research, we have startups, we have a great patient population. So, I, you know, I, I think we have to be a leader. And I really want to see people with sickle cell being cured or having treatments that make it um, you know, less of an effect on their day-to-day -day lives and allow them to do all the things they'd be able to do if they didn't have sickle cell. And there's so much work we have to do to get there. Um, I, I think, you know, a lot of it is around care delivery, um, especially 
once you get past the age of 18. But even below 18, we still have a lot of work to do. I think we're lucky. We got a lot going on in Detroit, but we got a lot of partners throughout the country. I've been really impressed with how the sickle cell community popped up during COVID and really addressed that very quickly. I think the infrastructure is there for great collaborations. There's things like this ASH Clinical Trials Network, which I hope can move things faster. And I, I think, you know, we better play a big part in that. I'll go next because I want Dr. Sherney to, to, to close it out. I'd love to see Detroit be a center for innovation in sickle cell disease. And, and that's, you know, obviously where my passion is, is thinking about not limiting ourselves to the tools that we have in front of us right now or the way that we do things. But how can we imagine a better future and not only just sort of imagine and dream, but how do we make that a reality? And, and perfecting things like how do we get investment? Because you know it's, you can't do things without capital. And through the process and experience of trying to run a startup company that has a focus on sickle cell disease, I've learned a lot about how do you talk to people about investing in sickle cell disease that wouldn't have, have otherwise not thought about sickle cell disease as, as something to invest in and to make it matter to people who've not been directly touched by sickle cell disease or may not even know someone with sickle cell disease. So I think there's a lot of opportunities to innovate in how we care for sickle cell disease, for, for models of, of research, for some of the things that, that Amar is doing with wearable technologies and, and, and how we can get feedback on how patients are doing to the things that I'm interested in as they relate to biomarkers that apply to red blood cell health. Because I think those things benefit individuals with sickle cell disease, but as it relates to red blood cell health, I think there's opportunities where these insights we gain in sickle cell disease affect folks with a lot of different conditions. And then we, we sort of, you know, all boats rise when we make these kind of investments in an area like sickle cell disease. So innovation, I think, uh, helps to do a lot of things that moves us closer to the front of the bus. And, and, and that's where I want to see us in 10 years. Thank you, Patrick. All right, Dr. Sherney. Okay, so, all right, I'm going to um, kind of do something a little different. And, and um, I agree with everything everybody has already said about 10 years from now, okay? And for me personally, what I would like 10 years from now is when I call, I'll be 73, and when I call a family or Cree and I call together to talk to a family about the diagnosis of sickle cell disease, I'm able to say to them, I'm calling to tell you your child has sickle cell disease and set you up for an appointment to have a genetic cure that is safe and effective and we have some long-term follow-up to make sure that you know, you're going to be okay. So that, that I would love. But I, I really, I'm sorry, have to focus on the more immediate future, you know, because what I want now is all the things that I've been hearing about for 30 years in the sickle cell community, better care in the emergency room, respectful, compassionate care in the emergency room. We need it now. Having a comprehensive adult sickle cell clinic where there's a hematologist, a primary care provider, and it's one-stop shopping and you get the care you need. Access to these new medications. You know, having a Decvio be a, a step therapy for oxbrida is insane. You know, having to be on hydroxyurea in order to get on other new ther therapies is just ridiculous. So, and then transition. I know you asked the question about 10 years from now, but I'm a grassroots person and I'm really concerned about tomorrow. So we need to really get our behinds in gear and get some of these immediate things because our patients are dying. 
and the ones that are living longer, they're not living better. And, and there are things that we can really do to facilitate having individuals with sickle cell disease have a more, a better quality of life and, and right now, right now. Absolutely. And, and that's, there's no better example of why Detroit is uh, special when you have someone like Dr. Sherney inspiring you like that. But you're absolutely right. We need everything now. We needed it yesterday. So we're going to fight. And, and you guys know I'm always ready to throw a punch roll. I'm not, I'm not scared. Um, but, uh, you know, I think, I think Mike has a good question for us to close out with here. So since this is the Detroit legacy podcast, we thought we'd close with something light. What's your favorite place to eat in Detroit, Patrick? Oh man, you guys should have sent me this question in advance. Cause I've got so many places that I could, <laughs> I could choose from. I'm a big Selden standard fan in, uh, in, in, uh, Midtown. Plug for Selden Standard. That's a, I love going there with my wife and just uh, you know hanging out in, in Midtown and, and seeing all the, the new spots that are that are propping up. But that's one of my favorites. Excellent, Dr. Sherney. Okay, so for me, in terms of food, Greek Town Pegasus, but in terms of atmosphere, iridescence. That's on the the top of the casino. You can see yeah, the whole place, the whole town. Nice huh? place to go for a celebration all right how about you dr z you know I, I, again with i went with patrick we needed more prep time for this question if my wife asks me you know where should we go to dinner tonight my favorite vibe is honestly the london chop house yeah i really like i like the music i like the vibe i like the cigar bar upstairs i know that's not maybe necessarily a detroit detroit thing but right now that's my favorite place to go uh, it's been around for a long time so I, I think those are great, but uh, I'm going to have to go with American Coney Island. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, lowbrow, but, but great food, and uh, it's a classic. And nice and healthy, too. Absolutely. <laughs> Keep your cholesterol up. Right. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for joining us. Um, I, I'm really excited to have this Detroit Legacy podcast out. And... Uh, touch on a few of the highlights here in town. Thank you both. Thank um, you. Honestly, knowing that I work with people like you, the three of you, is what gets me out of bed every day. Because without a team like this, without inspirational people that keep me in check and keep us focused on our vision to better the care of sickle cell patients, I, um, I wouldn't want to do what I'm doing. So, so thank you all for being that inspiration for me. And um, thank you for all you do for our patients. I have lots to say, but not enough time. So I'm just going to end it with uh, keep doing what you're doing. And um, hopefully 10 years from now, um, we, see, we see good things. But, but I'm with Dr. Sherney. Hopefully tomorrow is better. And Mike and Amar, thank you for what you guys are doing with this podcast and this forum. This is a part of that innovation we're talking about. You guys have figured out ways of communicating to the world what we're doing, putting, providing a platform to talk about sickle cell disease. This, this is amazing. So you guys keep doing what you're doing. We really appreciate that as well. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Just have to keep on keeping on. There we go. There you go. There you go. All right, guys. Thanks again to our episode sponsor, Global Blood Therapeutics. Visit GBT.com to learn more about GBT's commitment to advancing the treatment and care of people affected by sickle cell disease. So we thought it would be really interesting to have a segment that covers a 
sort of physician celebrity that came from Detroit, actually from a pretty historic high school named Cass Tech. Yeah, Dr. Sherney went to Cass Tech too. It's a, a great place. And, you know, we're, we're so, so proud of so many things here in Detroit, but to have people who grew up here and, and go on to do great things like Dr. Bridges um, is really a, a testament to this city. Dr. Ken Bridges is the Vice President of Medical Affairs for Global Blood Therapeutics, who actually are a sponsor for our podcast. And we had the chance to sit down with him a few months ago to talk about his story, to talk about his legacy and um, how he set up the sickle cell clinic at Harvard during his time there. Uh, So we hope that you guys enjoy this next segment about just a kid from Detroit making his way um, into a, a prominent industry position. Dr. Bridges, it is an honor to have you do this for us. We are just so thrilled to have someone with Detroit roots on this show. Well, thank you so much, Mar. This is really very exciting for me and uh, great being back in my hometown. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Well, we, we sort of wanted to have you tell your story of uh, how Ken Bridges became Ken Bridges, starting out as uh, sort of a boy in Detroit. Sure. I actually need to go back a little further than that. I was born in Mississippi. Okay. And my parents were part of that migration of uh, folks from the south up to the north uh, during the uh, industrial part of the middle of the 20th century. And at that point, as the uh, southern agricultural jobs and, and activity were declining, there was a boom after World War II, of course, and going on into the 50s of activity in the north, and particularly Detroit. So my relatives uh, came up from Mississippi, some went to Detroit, some went to Chicago, some went to Cleveland, but essentially to all the places where there were big industrial activities. So my parents were here in Detroit. I'm the oldest of my siblings, and my mom went back to Mississippi to be with her mom while I was born. So that's where I was born there, never lived there, visited a lot, mm-hmm. uh, but grew up uh, in Detroit. So you came to Detroit very early? Yes. So your primary schooling all happened here? Yep, my primary schooling all happened here. I, uh, For a long time, we lived over on the near east side, a place not far from the Belle Isle Bridge, uh, yeah. on a street, Concord was okay. the name of the street. Sure. Or if you, you say Concord here in Michigan, I, I lived, I'll get to this, many years in Boston, about three or four decades in Boston. And in Boston, it said Concord <laughs> is how you pronounce it. But anyway, whether I lived in Concord or in Concord, um, I grew up uh, through elementary school there and then moved over to the near west side and uh, went through uh, school all the way up to high school there on uh, the area on the near west side. In high school at Cass Tech. And I went to Cass Tech for high school, which was an interesting experience because at that point, until I went to Cass Tech, I'd been in all-black schools. I, in fact, as a kid growing up on, first on the, uh, well, actually on the uh, Near East Side when I was on Concord, I was surprised I was in school one day and the teacher was talking about being a minority. I thought, being a minority? (laughs) What are you talking about? And she said, "Uh, yeah, uh, as a minority here. And I thought, well, uh, how can be a minority? Because everybody I see is black. Uh, The only people that I see who are not black are like policemen, 
teachers and uh, maybe uh, some people in the grocery store selling things in the grocery store. But other than that, so it was amazing. It was a transformation. And that actually spoke to something that I didn't understand that puzzled me when I was a little kid watching the Mickey Mouse show. Sure. Why aren't there any black people in the Mickey Mouse show? Yeah, uh, what is wrong with this show? Right. And, and, right. What is, and so it was a very interesting. You, as a kid, you see what is around you. That is your world. That is the, in fact, it's the universe. And until you begin to see more, and so until I uh, went to cast tech, I mean, I'd actually by the time I got to be a teenager, I knew a little more about the world, but I'd never actually had experiences in school with people other than uh, other African-American students. So that was the first time that I really began to see that the world was much broader than I had appreciated. Wow. Wow, that's wow, that's powerful. Of course, you you excelled academically at Cass Tech and then made your way over to Ann Arbor. Yes. How was that experience? Well, it was interesting. Cass Tech was a, a challenge in that it was so focused. I was in uh, one of the curriculum, Science and Arts was a the curriculum there. It had a number of curriculum. Cass had 4,000 students in the school at that time, 1,000 in my graduate, graduating class. So the Science and Arts curriculum, Cass was... I guess still is, a magnet school, pulling people not only from Detroit, but also from places outside. I found those students to be, on average, better than those in Ann Arbor. So when I went to Ann Arbor, it was actually quite easy. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And how, how was, I mean, tell us a little bit about U of M at that point in time. Yeah, U of M had just had uh, increasing the numbers of minority students at U of M. And at that point, there was an ongoing effort to try and inc- increase the, the numbers. And that really produced uh, a lot of tensions. There was a lot of tensions that were going on, you know, through things that were going on through the 70s, where you began to have this interface between people who took a more mil- militaristic or activist view towards expanding student presence versus people who took a more, but a more passive, but a less uh, aggressive approach. And so uh, things were very interesting there at, at the University of Michigan. But I must admit the university was very, overall very positive and very progressive, yeah. Wonderful. What, when did you decide you wanted to be a doctor? Yeah, well, as a student, uh, when I, as a high school student, I really you know, you don't know very much about things that you don't know about. I guess that's an oxymoron. Um, <laughs> but, or, or self-evident, anyway. You don't know about the things that are outside your, your sphere, outside of your, your range of vision. Sure. And so the things that I knew about were, like, teachers. And so I thought, well, being a teacher, that would be kind of nice. And I knew about uh, things like uh, being, you know, of course, policemen, firemen, stuff like that. And uh, my parents were both uh, worked in the automobile industry, so I knew kind of roughly those kinds of jobs. There were the blue-collar jobs and there were white-collar jobs in the automobile industry. I didn't really want to do any of that. So my initial plan was to go and be a teacher, and then I got to to um, University of Michigan. You have to start as a uh, student to begin your distribution classes. And I started taking classes, and I, and I wanted to take a sociology class. So that sounds really interesting. And I remember one of my sociology professors 
who was a um, just one of these people who just seemed to have a, a great understanding and just a, a wise vision. I said, boy, that would be really fun. It was really hard getting into that class. So in the meantime, I took science classes, had to do my chemistry and physics and all that sort of stuff, which you know, that went fine. And pretty soon I said, well, I kind of like this stuff too. Yeah. And uh, that's when I kind of began to think about things outside of just sort of teaching or sociology or something like that, and, and gradually moved over to medicine as an interesting option. So are you then the first doctor in your family? Yeah, first person to graduate from college in my family. Wonderful. Yeah. Wow. So. Wow. Wow. Very, very cool. Good. And so, so then off to medical school. Yeah, off to medical school. I went to Harvard to medical school. Uh, did well at Michigan, went to Harvard to medical school. And it was there that I really began um, a, a different... Again, changing in perspective. When I went to uh, out to Harvard, that was the first time going to the East Coast, first time being outside of, well, Michigan and Mississippi. Because we went up and down that corridor, I-75. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but outside of that corridor, I really hadn't traveled anywhere. And so that was another eye-opening uh, experience. One of the things there was my first year in medical school, my section instructor uh, was Frank Bunn, who was a, um, at that point, well-known and then later very famous hematologist, structural biologist in chemistry and in uh, hematology, and, he, and particularly in hemoglobin. And I worked in Frank's lab over the summer, and that was when I first became interested in sickle cell disease. So that, that's what gave you the bug. Yeah, I, that's I right. I think that's a common theme, people who go into hematology. It's early in medical school or even in college they get into a lab or they you know work with the hematologist and get get hooked yes yeah you start to see the beauty of answering questions um, because one of the things that struck me while i was in college that you know i learned all of these wonderful things you learn about history and philosophy and and uh various other things and it's it's really great if you learn the philosophy of Rousseau or Bertrand Russell or somebody like that. But then you think, boy, these are great thoughts, but you know, I've never thought of an original thought in my life. <laughs> and I never, you know, every idea, every piece of knowledge that I had, something that I learned that somebody else had already thought of. And so what really struck me was working in the lab one day, we were doing an experiment, and I came in in the evening, late in the evening, to get the results coming off of the uh, scintillation counter. And I plotted it out, and I knew the answer. For the first time, I have an answer that nobody else in the world knows. Wow. And wow. that was really cool. It was a trivial question, but it was something. And that really struck me as being, this is the great thing about going and getting new information and learning new things and pushing the boundary. So on that note, you know, along the way, just as just just as Dr. Callahan was sort of saying, it takes for mentors to shape the way and change the way you look at sort of the world. And it sounds like you had a powerful one early on. Tell us a little bit about through medical school and, and from that point going forward, who you ran into that maybe changed the way that you sort of were perceiving medicine and the way that you saw your career going. I think that the impact of mentors really is a central aspect of, of uh, one's development. 
not only the guidance, but also the feedback, and you get uh, recommendations. One of the things that happens is as your career moves, you move in a linear direction for a long time. You, you go through undergraduate, then you go to uh, medical school, in this case, uh, then you go to your residency training, then it becomes unlinear at that point. There are, right. you know, options begin to open up. And having uh, someone who can give you advice and uh, feedback on your right. options was really wonderful. So, so you went uh, in medical school into Frank Bunn's lab. What were you guys working on, and did you continue on that, or, or just kind of pulled you into hematology? Well, the first uh, study that I worked on, a uh, uh, lab uh, project that I worked on in Frank's lab, was looking at the acetylation of hemoglobin uh, by aspirin. Aspirin does a non does a covalent modification of hemoglobin molecules, and uh, we looked at that and to see how that changed the function of the hemoglobin molecule. Asking the question, could this alter other important aspects? And so that first lab, now my first presentation uh, was on this uh, work. Uh, and I uh, presented that at the uh, meeting of the Sickle Cell Centers grant, uh, Sickle Cell Centers program, which oh, wow. was a, uh, at that point, there were 10 comprehensive sickle cell centers, and they would have an annual meeting. And so I had a chance to present this at the annual meeting, asking the question, could this somehow be useful, this kind of modification, be somehow useful in sickle cell disease? So now, fast forward all these years, working on the Voxellator program, which is a modification of hemoglobin by a small molecule that changes the properties of the hemoglobin molecule. And in this case, it does have an impact on the uh, pathophysiology of sickle cell disease. Unlike aspirin, it does have a, a, a change. So it's been a very interesting arc you know, from that wow. standpoint. So there were a lot of studies in the 70s of aspirin and sickle cell, and I always thought it was targeting the platelets, but it acetylates hemoglobin. I didn't even know that. Mm-hmm. Did that affect carbon dioxide carrying? It did not affect carbon dioxide carrying. It, it, the binding of the, um, the acetylation was to residues that were distal to both the hemoglo- um, to the oxygen binding pocket as well as the uh, area that uh, interacted with carbon monoxide or dioxide. Sorry. So no, no big functional change with the acetylation. Yeah. So it was an interesting, we could modify it, we could measure it, but there was no really functional change. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's really interesting, though. So did you continue on with that, or did you uh, no, uh, yeah. present yeah. it and then move on to... Yeah, well, yeah so I, I did that. Uh, that was work that I did as a medical student. Then, of course, you go into residency and such things and get too busy, or at least for, for me anyway, too busy. So I just concentrated on that for a while. But then I did come back and do a hematology fellowship at the Brigham. And at that point, I wanted to expand out. So rather than staying at the Brigham, I could have, of course, worked in Frank's lab or something. But I wanted to expand out and do some other things. And at that point, I went down to the NIH and worked uh, down there for several years in in Gil Ashwell's lab, who was in the it was in NHLBI, National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, uh, at that point, and at that point, working on iron metabolism, and we we're working on the trying to understand 
how iron got into cells from transferrin. And that's where we wow. worked on isolating the transferrin receptor, figuring out how that is internalized and how it re- releases iron. And then later I started working on ferritin and how iron gets in and out of ferritin and the, the, the ferritin molecule itself, the the production and that there is a control unit that gives the feedback. So that was the thing I did. And I, and I continued to work on that after I came back. I spent three years at the NIH, then came back to the to the Brigham, at, now in faculty, junior faculty, set up my lab working again on iron metabolism. But at that point, I recognized that there was something uh, we had a lot of patients coming in, not, not a lot of patients with iron disorders, as you know. I mean, there's hereditary hemochromatosis and then some other, other rare things. Right. So my activity in that point uh, was general, but I began seeing a lot of the sickle cell patients. And it just struck me that we were doing a lot of very interesting work, but the care for people with sickle cell disease was not organized. Uh, it was not very good. And I talked with Frank, and I talked with uh, other people, um, including uh, David Nathan, who was head of uh, Children's. And we talked about what would be needed to have a a better care system, how to bring uh, patients so that we have a system that could follow patients longitudinally, give them a uh, comprehensive program. And that's when I set up at that point at the Brigham and Mass General because Mass General had no program as well. So we set up the what's now what is the joint program for sickle cell and thalassemic disorders at Mass General, which is still there, still works. And amazing. That point we were able that to then not only continue doing good science, but also providing uh, patient care and providing uh, continuous patient care. And when, at that point, we then later extended it to children's so that we worked with a transition between children's hospital and the Brigham so that we, patients were not you know, falling off a cliff when they got to right. the uh, end of their, you know, as they became older at children's hospital and were looking for, for ways to go. And that was really, that was really very rewarding um, to, to sort of see a good program set up that could provide what was really needed uh, for patients. From experience, it's a very challenging thing to do. How did you get the administration to buy in and um, mobilize resources, get the community involved? Make people care. Yeah. How do you make people care? Yeah. Really, there were several things that we were able to do. First, and most importantly, was getting buy-in from people at the um, higher levels in the administration. I mentioned David Nathan, who was at Children's, but also at that point, David was head of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And the importance there was we needed a facility to see patients, to have patients seen as an outpatient if they had emergencies or if, uh, so they could avoid going to the emergency room, which was and still remains a challenging situation. And in order to do that, we were able to work with uh, the Dana-Farber to get that done. And then within the Brigham, with the Brigham uh, leadership, worked as well to bring in the additional uh, resources, you know, to get a nurse, you gotta have a nurse practitioner, and uh, you gotta have some other people coming in. And we were then able to apply to get grants uh, from HRSA, and uh, we also were folded into the NIH program. So it was really something where 
getting buy-in from leadership was, was crucial. Then having a plan about how you're going to go about it, and then having the ability to show a program that would be sustainable. Uh, were you able to maintain your lab and continue working on iron through all of this, or did it kind of take over? And Yeah, I continued my, my lab work uh, and work on iron, although I shifted my clinical work to working on more on sickle cell disease. So, for instance, uh, doing things where we looked at aspects of how hydroxyurea at that point altered aspects of the sickle cell uh, uh, red cells. And so my laboratory activity became kind of uh, bifurcated into sort of clinical on the sickle cell program and then on the basic bench lab stuff, you know, still on the uh, ferritin, uh, iron mobilization, and genetics of iron, yeah. So certainly, I mean, you, you obviously got, uh, you have a vast experience with sickle cell disease. Um, you know, you got to see patients several decades ago. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, some of the challenges you're talking about we're, we're still sort of fighting in 2020. You know, the, um, I guess, the involvement that you now have with Global Blood Therapeutics, um, you know, one of, the, one of the really clear things to me is how dedicated this company is to sickle cell disease. Tell us a little bit about how sort of your experience with sickle cell disease brought you to this point. How, from from mm-hmm. that point clinically, to getting to a company like Global Blood Therapeutics. Yes. Talk a little bit about that journey. When I um, left, uh, I left uh, the uh, Harvard in 2006 and initially uh, worked at Amgen Pharmaceuticals working on on really erythropoietin and uh, their erythropoietin type of products there. So still in the red blood cell field, but very different orientation from what I uh, did. And, but in the, in the background was this uh, knowledge that, uh, you know, that circle was, was really very, very important. One of the things that happened was that while I was at the Brigham and Mass General, Ted Love was at the General in cardiology. Oh, wow. And so Ted went into industry and through various other channels by... 2010, come over to Onyx Pharmaceuticals, which was working on myeloma drug, and Ted was head of research and development. And I came from Amgen, I was uh, talked with Ted and some other people and came up to Onyx and worked on that program. And it had bortezomib? A, no, so we were a competitor to bortezomib, it was just carfilzomib. Oh, okay. It's yeah, which oral. Is oral, yeah, yeah which is okay. now caprolis, the oral uh, agent, and that's been, worked pretty well. And uh, so Ted retired from that, and uh, at that point, he then became CEO of Global Blood Therapeutics, working on sickle. And I talked with him at one of the um, meetings, and he asked me if I would be interested in working uh, in the program that he was developing there. And so we talked over several months and worked out a program, and I came over uh, to really the first hematologist and there at the Global Blood Program. So I, I think a career in academic medicine has a lot of you know, great aspects to it. One of them is, like you said, that you know I have this piece of knowledge that nobody else has and I'm answering interesting questions. And, um, and I think having colleagues across the country that you meet at meetings and you work with and also patient care, you know, if you have one-on-one uh, 
patient relationships and feeling that you're making a difference there. But I, I think there's also a grind to it and you always feel like you're limited and there's always another grant deadline and you're not getting funding so you can't do the thing that you think is going to help people and uh, helping people is very retail. So there's always this draw to industry where there's resources and you can make a huge difference and, and sort of you know, make a, a big advance that can help everybody. When, when did you decide to make that leap and, and what was the what was the thing? Was it push or pull or Well that's a that's a crucial question and I think it's really very, very central. In academia, industry, certainly in the past, was really painted with a very dark brush. Uh, what went on over there was uh, very much uh, at, at odds to what we did in, in, in academia. A couple things happened for me. There were two people in my training group, one in my direct training group from the Brigham, very good guy, who early on uh, went to industry. He, he went uh, to Biogen. And Biogen was small at that time, and uh, worked on on aspects and and so I had feedback in terms of what was going on, and it gives you a different picture. And another uh, friend who at that point went to uh, was a relatively small company, which was Genzyme uh, at that time, and so getting input and feedback from people who are uh, working in the industry uh, gave a, a different picture. Second is the very important point that you bring out, and I think this is a real challenge for academic uh, medicine, is the, the motto at, uh, Brigham, at the Brigham, every, every place has their little motto that they sew on your white coat, uh, it was patient care, teaching, and research. And I thought, man, that's what I really want to do. And, I, and Frank Bunn was really my, my model uh, who did, did all those things. But things were changing. And things were changing such that it was becoming increasingly difficult to do all those things. All those, each of those three things I really liked. The other thing that you have is administrative stuff, which I didn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, but so there are really four prongs to that uh, academic uh, activity. And what I found was that each of those became increasingly challenging for a person who was not devoting full-time. And in academia, as you know, you actually devote like 110% of your time because you cut out other things. You cut out time with family, time with friends, and things like that. It's a very, very uh, intense activity. And uh, what then happens is you become less competitive. I became less competitive in my grants. Um, and so I was, you know, I knew it was every three months, my, my grant sucker, I was, I was applying for either renewal or uh, trying to get one, a new grant to, to, to come in. Then I had supporting my lab as well as the clinical uh, research activities, you know, the research related to that. And then at that point, there was increasing challenges with patient care, with the administrative things, that you were no longer a teacher as a professor. You didn't uh, do what I consider the traditional teaching where you go around and you would talk and you would show and instruct and teach. You actually were kind of a glorified intern because you had to do all those papers and notes and sign everything. Uh, you couldn't countersign anything. It was, and so you, you know the story. And so that became increasingly challenging. Unfortunately too well. Yeah. And what, to me, that was very frustrating because I, I love seeing patients, seeing patients and talking to patients. And when they started to give me these little 10-minute blocks uh, or 15 minutes, I don't remember what they were, they were too, all too, always too short. 
And so I was always being yelled at, you know, for uh, being behind uh, and not having uh, the number of patients. And my response was, I don't care. Um, patients are going to get what they need. And that doesn't draw you lots of friends from the people who are uh, running those sorts of things. So it became an increasingly challenging uh, situation. And I think that uh, it finally reached to the point where I said, this is a balance and I just can't do this anymore. And that's when I decided to uh, look into industry. And at that point, I had a friend who was at Amgen that I knew from the old iron metabolism days from a long time. And he was looking for someone to come and work in his group. And that's when I said, okay, I'll look into this. Obviously, I understand totally those frustrations because we, we go through that still. I mean, it's yeah. exactly the same. It just keeps getting worse. It gets worse, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you made the right choice. You know, selfishly, I, I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy that you made this jump and ended up where you are because your company's making a real impact now mm -hmm. um, in the lives of these patients. And, and the patients feel it. They feel that um, this is a company that's compassionate to... Um, their struggle, and I think the the importance of this being a drug designed for them is is is, is huge. It, it comes across in our conversations with them. You know, as we're finishing up now, I, I kind of want to hear from you. You know, being a clinician, I, how, when if you were sitting on the opposite side of this, if you were mm -hmm. in that in that exam room with a patient talking about Voxellator as a new yes. class drug, yes. How would that conversation look when you talk to a patient? What would you talk to them about? How would you present this drug to them? And what would you say to them about? I would uh, really uh, focus on the fact that there are some very clear clinical benefits that, that come on. Uh, that is laboratory benefits, the rise in hemoglobin being the, the obvious one. And you see other changes. But those aren't the important changes. Uh, what really are the important changes are the things that you see down the line. And the patients that I, it's a, it's a very kind of emotional thing, thinking about some of the patients who really had declining life and uh, declining quality because of the ongoing slow grind of sickle cell disease. And I would focus on the need to begin a program of prevention and really preventing those things. Because once they happen, once you get renal failure, you know, there, is, there are not a lot of good options. Once you get heart failure, not, not a lot of good, good options. So trying to avoid getting there. And that is something which is very challenging, not just for sickle cell, for all of us. Right, right. Yeah, I think, you know, we've been excited just to have drugs in sickle cell. Um, we haven't had a lot of treatment options. Um, but I've, I've really been happy to see GBT's approach. Um, I, I think bringing you in as a medical director is an example, somebody who's got a long experience with red blood cells, with sickle cell patients, who understands clinical medicine, has a big role in, in what the company's doing. And I think rare disease is a space where you can do well by doing good. And so I like to see the, the patient programs and the advocacy you guys have. What plans do you guys have going forward? I mean, this is the first shot across the bow of sickle cell mm -hmm. disease, but there's more pipeline, there's more um, rollout of this, more programs. I think there are other drugs and other pipeline drugs for sickle cell disease, but one thing that's very important that we're working on is looking at sickle cell disease in a global uh, fashion. 
You know, 95% of people with sickle cell disease live in low-resource countries, yes. India and, and uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. So one of our efforts right now is to begin, and it's just beginning, to try and address the issue of how we can get a new therapy uh, to people uh, where the uh, social, the infrastructure, and other uh, situations and economic situations are, are really very, very challenging. So we're doing a two-pronged approach where we're developing uh, additional agents to uh, address sickle cell in um, the current environment, uh, the uh, developed world, but also trying to address how we can begin to uh, look at the needs of the vast, vast majority of people. That's so important. I'm really happy that you guys are paying attention to that, that because it's um, that's where the burden is. That's really where the burden of this disease is. Well, uh, for my final sort of uh, thought that I want to get from you is tell us about uh, the things you miss most or remember most, your fond memories of Detroit. Oh, Motown. <laughs> well, the, the uh, Motown used to have something called the Motown Review, mm -hmm. which was at the Fox Theater. I don't know, the Fox Theater has been changed now, as I understand it. But it was Fox Theater was great. And they would have all these really great performers who would come and perform. And you could go to there, and they would have the Supremes and the Temptations and uh, just various other people, Smokey Robinson, they would come one after another. Stevie Wonder was up there once, wow. and um, they couldn't get him off the stage because <laughs> you know because because it was a review. There was only a short period. It was like you're doing a whole concert. They would maybe do you know, twenty minutes at the most, you know, for each of the ones they're going through. And they had to go and, and like drag him off the stage because he was having so much fun. He kept saying, "Move away, move away." So that was great. That's awesome. That's well, the Fox Theater is still there, and it's a great venue. But it sounds like they need to bring this review back. Yeah. <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much for joining us on uh, Cheat Codes. It's really been a pleasure to have you here. Thank you. All right, Warriors, that was a great, great episode. I'm reinvigorated after hearing all about Dr. Witten and uh, talking with some colleagues who uh, keep me motivated. Keep living well with sickle cell and share this podcast with someone who you think could learn a little bit about sickle cell disease. We will see you next time. Follow me at Dr. Z Sickle Cell. And me at, at Imagineer. Take care.